A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheist waren die Brüder in Amerika. Von Kaufen schaffen es es gibt Out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little. It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Gabriel. Yehuda Gabriel with Jewish History Soundbites, and this episode, I'll talk a little bit about the uh, three partitions of Poland at the end of the 18th century which had a great effect both on, of course, Polish history, but also on the Jewish population in the former Polish kingdom as a result of the partitions of Poland. Partitions is the dividing up of Poland. In in Hebrew, it's called Chalukat Poland, the division. Partitions sometimes is translated as as Mechitza. So we're not talking about Mechitzas in Polish shuls. I think a bigger topic would be Mechitzas in Hungarian shuls, uh, they're more particular about how high the mechitza has to be, but uh, partici- partition in this context is not a mechitza, it's the dividing up of this the kingdom into uh, different pieces of the pie for its surrounding neighbors, and the Polish kingdom essentially disappeared, and all the Jews living in Poland uh, at the end of the 18th century, this is the last decades of the 1700s, um, found themselves in neighboring countries because the Polish kingdom simply was wiped off the map. So this obviously would have big ramifications for uh, Jewish history as well. So the Polish kingdom, which existed for hundreds of years, was one of the largest kingdoms in Europe and uh, one of the best places for the Jews to be. Uh, they they did very well there. They got you know privileges and rights from the Polish kings and the Polish aristocracy, and they were very successful there. There's the golden age of Polish Jewry. They had their ups and downs there as well, of course, but relatively to um, most other places in the world, especially in Europe at the time, the Polish kingdom was um, uh, pretty much the ideal home for the Jewish people. Now, in, uh, in the 1700s, most Jews in the world lived in one of two places, either in the Polish kingdom or the Ottoman Empire. The Ottoman Empire was uh, primarily Sephardic Jews, uh, descendants of the Spanish exiles after the expulsion, and the Polish kingdom had the largest population of Ashkenazi Jews because most of Europe was not that friendly to Jews by the time the uh, 16th and 17th uh, centuries rolled around. And the Polish kingdom was still run on an old feudal system, and the Jews lived there by having a basically a, a, 
a, a contract, uh, privileges, it was called, you know, a, a written document of privileges from the Polish kings. But even more importantly than the monarchy was with the local nobility, magnates uh, who owned massive tracts of real estate, who owned were huge owners of land throughout the kingdom, ar- aristocrats, and, um, you know, even lower nobility. Um, and they maintained, the Jewish population maintained under this system their own autonomy, their own kahal, their own communities with their own laws, their own rules governing life, their own taxing system. And it was, and it was a, they ran a tight ship, meaning there was no uh, Jewish existence outside of the Jewish kahal, outside of the Jewish community, unless you converted to Catholicism. So the, uh, the Jewish kahal ran all the Jewish institutions. It was, uh, it was run by the, the uh, elite, the wealthy of the community and the rabbinical leadership of each community. And then there was the national leadership, which the Polish kingdom had set up, the Polish uh, monarchy had set up, established to collect taxes. They wanted a better mechanism to collect taxes already in the 1500s, so they established the Council of the Four Lands, the Vad Ha'ar Baharatzes, and once it was uh, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, um, which is the, the uniting the Polish kingdom with the, uh, uh, the the Duchy of Lithuania further north, it became one large kingdom. So therefore, it was the Vad Ha'ar and Lithuania, and this was a international, uh, or rather huge national uh, Jewish autonomous governing body, which, as far as the Polish government was concerned, was just to collect taxes and enable the king to be able to extract the maximum amount of taxes with the least uh, possible effort. Once this this system was in place, of course, so the Jews uh, utilized it to have kind of their own self-governing, autonomous national government, where at the large market fairs in Lublin and Yaroslav, twice a year, they would gather the Jewish leadership, uh, layman uh, leadership and also rabbinical leadership, to, uh, to um, you know, work on intercommunal uh, issues and, and, and supra-communal affairs as well. So that, that is all in the old Polish kingdom. As the 18th century rolls around, so most countries of Europe, and to a certain extent even around the world, are going through uh, an element of turmoil. There's a, this shift from the feudal uh, system of the Middle Ages, and the, even in the post-Renaissance, but the pre-modern era, there's this dispersed authority where there's a lot of autonomy of certain subgroups within society. There's this triangular sharing of power, which is a holdover of medieval medieval times between the church, the nobility, and the monarchy in every country in Europe. And slowly what happens over the 18th century is there's this slow, gradual centralizing of power into a central authority, a much stronger monarchy, much less autonomy given to other entities, such as different aristocrats who own cities or own land and and the villages on their land go according to their laws. No, there's centralized law for the whole country. And the same thing as far as the church is concerned. And this greatly improves the economies of each country because centralized authority with a central taxation system and laws and roads and education and all these things, this is essentially the beginning of the modern era. And 
also the armies. Until then, it was very difficult to raise an army and to fund an army, but with centralized authority, uh, armies uh, changed as well, military. So this is this also becomes a big feature of the modern era. Uh, more functioning countries with centralized authority, and in the pre-democracy era, they were very often absolutist as well. The famous in France, the Sun King, King Louis the Fifteenth or Sixteenth—I don't remember which. Uh, they're all Louis, so it's just pick pick a number. Um, and at the same time, the 18th century is also, towards the end of the 18th century, is also a time of revolutions. This is the, in the philosophy, the, in, the Enlightenment, uh, John Locke and others. This is the time where there are these new ideas of the rights of man, of freedoms. And of course, the first ones to do it are the American colonies. This is the time of the American Revolution, which is followed shortly afterwards in 1789 in Europe by the French Revolution. And many of the absolutist monarchies, even if they stayed absolutist and they did not have revolution in their countries, but they were to develop into enlightened absolutists. And they ran their countries with certain, incorporating certain elements and ideas of the enlightenment, even though they remained uh, absolutist monarchs. Now, all this is, of course, you know, relevant to general history, but it's going to become very apparent momentarily that it was very uh, relevant to Jewish history and to the partitions of Poland. Um, now, the recognition was that uh, by many uh, absolutist monarchs in Europe during the 18th and 19th centuries, that absolutism coupled with Enlightenment ideas would involve all citizens of the country, first of all, to make them, incorporate them as citizens of the country, to to free the serfs and to create certain elements of equality within the country and would involve all citizens of the country towards the country's economic development and security. So the idea was they were an absolutist monarchy, but they still wanted the country to become rich and strong. And they realized that the ideas of the Enlightenment would would assist in that purpose. So that's that's what's going on in Europe. So Poland, in the meantime, was not heading that much in that direction. Uh, it was lagging behind its its neighbors, and it was still run by a, a same a parliament. Till today, the uh, governing body, the parliament of Poland, is called the same, uh, S E J M. And in, as in almost all European languages, a J is pronounced as Y. Pretty much uh, in 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 uh, in Amer- United States is one of the only countries that. It's not the case, or unless it's English-speaking countries, England, England also, I'm not sure. But in European languages, a J is a Y. So it's the same uh, uh, of the uh, aristocrats. Um, the All the nobility were members of the, of, of, to varying degrees, of this parliament. There was no centralized power. The monarch, the king, did not have a lot of power, like it was in many other countries until the modern era. There was lots of autonomy, incredible amount of autonomy, to the nobility, especially to the huge uh, land-owning magnates. Uh, they, they basically ran their own little fiefdoms, their own little countries. They had their own little armies, sometimes big ones. They had their own systems of taxes, their own laws. And it was, the, there, was abs- there was almost no centralized authority. Jews ironically benefited from this because they maintained local connections with their local aristocrats. And they carried out a very effective shtadlonis, or in a modern term it would be called lobbying, uh, to further their needs, to protect their autonomy in both 
religious areas and economically. Their jobs that they had, the, 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 uh, the, the, the place that they played in the, the unique niche that they played in the Polish economy at the time, they protected it with this Stadlanis. To this lack of centralized authority was able to, uh, um, you know, the, the Jews were able to maintain their own autonomy because of lack of centralized authority, as well as benefiting from it by um, using various lobbying skills with their local uh, aristocrat. Um, so this lack of centralized authority is what leads to Poland's downfall, essentially, because the nobility was not united. There is no strong centralized army. They could not raise the funds and the taxes to have a functioning country, and they could not reach agreement at the same for reform and development. And not only that, it got even worse when individual uh, members of the nobility would make treaties with surrounding kings from Prussia, from the German states, from Austria, Russia, Sweden, and they would actually bring in foreign powers into Poland on their own initiative. So the Poland, the Polish kingdom weakens, and what results is the partitions. Um, the in three stages, the three partitions of Poland uh, took place in 1772. 1792 and 1795, it was completed. At, and after the third partition in 1795, the Polish kingdom ceased to exist as a Polish ent- as a as a political excuse me as a political entity, and there would be no more Poland until uh, Poland, would, the Second Polish Republic, would rise from the ashes of World War II, to, uh, World War One uh, in, in in at the Treaty of Versailles. So. 1772 is the first partition, so that becomes a major year in Jewish history because the Jewish communities of Poland uh, start to break up. It's interesting is that there's two other major events that happen in the Polish kingdom, in the in the Jewish community of the Polish kingdom in 1772. So we take the three together, and 1772 actually becomes a very crucial year in Jewish history. So first of all, like I said, it was the first Polish partition, first partition of Poland. The second thing that happens is the first cherem, the first ban on the Hasidic movement is signed in Vilna by the Vilna Gain. And, uh, the, and the third thing that happens is, the um, related also to the Hasidic movement, is that the Maggit of Mizrich, Reb Ber Mizrich, the closest student and successor of the Baal Shem Tev, he passes away that year as well. And, um, and the, that, that uh, gives both an impetus to the movement to spread, as his students uh, have their own courts all over the former Polish kingdom, and uh, and that, that becomes a, a big moment in the spread of the Hasidic movement. So so you have those those three events that take place. So the three surrounding, of the three partitions, and they're split up, Poland is split up amongst the three surrounding empires. Austria, which is later Austro-Hungary after 1867, or the House of Habsburg, which was... You know, also the Holy Roman Empire, which essentially was almost non-existent uh, at this time. Uh, it was completely non-existent during the Napoleonic Wars, but it was in its last stages. The the Holy Roman Empire, which was, which was as uh, as uh, who said Voltaire, I think said uh, uh, it was never holy. It was not Roman, and it was not an empire. But um, I didn't look that up, but I believe it was Voltaire. And the the the, the uh, but but the House of Habsburg. And the second one is Russia, which takes uh, the lion's share of the former Polish kingdom, and they're the House of Romanov, the Tsars. And then Prussia, which is part of Germany, which at that time was an independent kingdom. Later it was 
led the German Confederation, and much later on, at the end of the 19th century, it was the German Empire, after Otto von Bismarck united Germany. Um, another thing to keep in mind is the limited, continued Polish autonomy of local aristocrats in central Poland um, that continues under the officially un, under Russia, for the most part, um, and, but there's a certain amount of autonomy that, that the uh, local Polish arist- aristocracy maintains, um, and which is curtailed following the 1831 revolt, the Polish aristocracy revolts against Russian rule, and even more so after the 1863 revolt against Russian rule, and the Tsars curtail uh, Polish uh, autonomy so that uh, ceases to exist, but it did ha- it did exist for a, a, a long time. Which, by the way, during that uh, spe- both of those revolts, especially the second revolt in 1863, the Jews of Central Poland participated in Polish patriotism against the Tsar. Uh, very interesting uh, historical. We get to that in another episode, but that's a fascinating story. To a certain extent, even in Galicia, under the Habsburgs. The, um, the Polish uh, aristocrats maintained an element of autonomy as well. So these partitions have huge ramifications for Jews in many ways, and I'm going to focus on a few of them, and by no means is this going to be comprehensive or exhaustive. The most basic one, the most obvious one, is that they're not in one country anymore. Until the partitions of Poland, the Jews of the Polish kingdom, which is the largest Jewish community in the world, I want to emphasize that, and continues to be the largest uh, Jewish community in the world, the Jews of Eastern Europe, uh, of, of, of Russia and of Galicia. They continue to be the largest Jewish community in the world until the 20th century when the United States surpasses them because of immigration from those places, from Eastern Europe. But um, so they're, they are, and now instead of being in one country, in one kingdom, in Poland, they're in three kingdoms, which is different languages, different cultures, different values, different surroundings, different laws, different economic opportunity, and different political status. So this this takes getting used to. Uh, not not only does it take getting used to, but each each of these Jewish communities have to get used to a completely new set of everything I just mentioned. Not only that, but they also go now on different trajectories from each other when they used to be part of one country. So not only does each of these three Jewish communities need to get used to a whole new system, but they also are developing differently, even though they all came originally from the same place. And this is without any migration. They all stayed in their towns and cities, but they just fell under a different jurisdiction at this point. So what we refer to it now is instead of referred for hundreds of years, the Jews in Eastern Europe were referred to as Polish Jewry, because they were in the Polish kingdom. And from now on, we refer to a new entity called Eastern Europe, which has zero political meaning. It's just a geographical meaning, because now they're in different countries, and they're essentially all Jews originally from Poland, or descendants from those Jews from Poland, but now they find themselves developing under different empires, and we refer to it collectively as Eastern Europe. This situation would remain for the duration of what's sometimes referred to as the long 19th century. And the 19th century officially is from 1800 to 1900, but there's the long 19th century, which is just easier for historians to deal with. In general history, the long 19th century 
is goes from the French Revolution in 1789 until World War I in 1914, which was the collapse of the old order. In Jewish history, the long 19th century is even longer. It goes from 1772, from the first partition of Poland, until World War I. So that's the, that's the long 19th century. So these three Jewish societies are going to develop very differently based on the politics in general and specifically the specific legislation which affected the Jewish population in each empire, whether it was emancipation, whether it was rules regarding the economics of Jewish occupations in each respective empire, or laws directly related to religious life, regulating Jewish religious life in each empire. Another thing which is even more crucial, but on the other hand, it's more subtle, the transformation of Jewish society from an autonomous society, pre-modern, to a modern society where they're part of the country and they lose their autonomy. They lost their pre-modern kahal autonomous system in stages, and it began even before the partitions. In 1764, which is eight years before the first partition, the Polish kingdom dissolves the Council of the Four Lands, the Vad Ha'arba Ratzis. Why? Because ostensibly it had been established, and the only legal reason for its existence, as far as the Polish government was concerned, was to collect taxes. And they had found by this point that it was very ineffective, and for all kinds of reasons, and they found that it would be better to do direct taxation. They'd had to start doing censuses, individual census, and 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 uh, assessing property and the, the direct taxation. And therefore, they did not need this vad harbaratzis for taxation. And once it's dissolved for taxation reasons, so it no longer exists as an entity, and therefore it can never be used to govern internal Jewish affairs as it had been for the previous two centuries. Um, and then come, so already they're losing the autonomy at that point. But then comes the partitions. And they go into new countries, and these new countries abolish Jewish self-governing autonomy, even at the Kahal level, because they are absolutist and centralized government. That was the whole introduction before. They are no longer in Poland, which had lagged behind its neighbors in centralizing their government. And now... They're in these three neighboring countries which had very centralized governments, very developed. And therefore the idea that there would be minorities within the country that had their own um, uh, legal autonomy. Talk about legal autonomy. Cultural autonomy becomes one of the buzzwords of the 19th and 20th centuries. That's later on. We're not going to talk about that in this in this context, in this at this stage of our story, not cultural or religious autonomy. We're talking about legal autonomy, and that that uh, and the the abolishment of the kahal. So the official abolishment in Russia only happens in 1844. In Austria, in Austria, it happens much earlier, but very very quickly in both places and in Prussia as well. The the uh, the uh, Jews are becoming a modern society because their autonomous frameworks and institutions and kahals. And, and power, and local stadlonis, and lobbying with local authorities, it becomes the imperial authority in Vienna and St. Petersburg, and not, and not the local one that you deal with. So, to a certain extent, the local, uh, the local uh, Polish aristocrats did have certain power, which I'm going to get back to. So, this has long-reaching consequences for Jewish society. And like in many things, when we, again, looking ahead to the 19th and 20th centuries, when we look at all the changes and transformations and the modernization of Jewish society, 
And very often we like to, we tend to blame Jewish internal forces, reform, haskala, uh, nationalism, all the other isms. It almost never had to do with any, any of that. Usually reform and haskala and, and the isms and nationalism all were products of modernity, and they're not what modernized Jewish society or, or damaged traditionalist life in Jewish society. What, what transformed it was these external political changes that affected the change, that abolished the kahal, that, that, that brought uh, their modernist ideas and implemented emancipation, that implemented uh, changes in the Jewish economy, the Industrial Revolution, advances in technology, urbanization. These are the things that changed the Jewish society and modernized it, and, uh, and, and therefore it had its effect uh, much later in the 19th century on Jewish religious life and traditional life, and much, much less so um, the Jewish internal movements, which were pretty much a product of that and not its cause. Um, one of the uh, political reforms, um, which, I'm sorry, so the, uh, the I'm going to get back to it. So the, there's these, the thing is, is that it, the, the, these partitions take place over 20 years, right? It starts in 1772, over, over 20 years, and it ends in 1795, over two decades. So there's these interim stages where some places of the Polish kingdom are already under Russia or Austria, and others are still in the independent Polish kingdom, and what's taking place in this transitionary uh, stage. So a historic event took place in the twilight of the Polish kingdom on the world stage, which would have ramifications for the Jews of this rump state as well. In 1788, the nobility gathered in the same in Warsaw to work out reform and attempt to save the kingdom from further collapse. This same session lasted an incredible four years, until today it's known as the long same or the four-year same, and uh, that's that's how it's known throughout history. And there's many reforms that were passed. There was a new constitution that was written, and one of the reforms which was contemplated, which was raised as at the, at the four-year same, was to expand the political rights to the urban merchant class. Uh, the only ones who had political rights in the Polish kingdom were the aristocracy. No one else had any rights. Um, this was a revolutionary concept to expand those rights to the urban merchant class. Of course, not to the serfs and the, and the, the, the working on the in the villages and the on the farms and the agricultural uh, villages, but talking about the urban merchant class. So this was a revolutionary concept in Poland because until that point, only the landed nobility were considered part of the Polish nation. So as soon as this was raised, that quickly raised the question about the Jews' future status. Because here's one of the most important points about European Jewish history, which is often overlooked, or at least not emphasized. And this is all over Europe, not just in Poland, throughout medieval Europe. In the rigid class society, which is prevalent throughout European history, which is itself often overlooked by Americans, because there was never any type of class system in American history, there was another type of class system, but that's a different story. But the rigid class system that was so dominant in European life um, was didn't really cross the Atlantic. Uh, so they, there were several classes in European society. There's the monarchy, there's the high nobility, which was these magnates who owned uh, uh, most of the real estate. There's the lower nobility, you know, county squires and and ones who owned villages or smaller pieces of real estate, or none, just because they had a title, they inherited a title. Then there's the church, which has a different status. They're their own class. 
Then there's the town merchant class. Then there's the guilds of the skilled workers. And then there's the majority of the population, which in an agrarian society were the peasants, the farmers, the laborers, the lowest class, and almost basically property of the nobility. There are many times they're referred to as the serfs. Uh, there are many terms for how to refer to them. Um, and all of the above classes were Christian, and throughout most of European history, Catholic Christian. So where do the Jews fit into all that? So Jews were always, 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 without exception, similar to the urban merchant class, because they lived in market towns. They lived in shtetls. Shtetl is Yiddish for, not shtot, is big city, or relatively big city. Shtetl is smaller city, a market town. They did not live in the villages. There were Jews who did, but they were the exception, not the rule. They lived derfels, small villages. Um, but for the most part, Jews lived in market towns. Now, so this always, throughout European history, caused lots of economic friction with the merchant class. And this defined their relationship with the nobility, because the Jews always tried to go to the aristocracy, to the monarchy and the government, and, and they conflicted with the merchant class in the towns. And here as well, uh, the Jews were lobbying by the four years same to, to, get, uh, to get what was politically beneficial for them. So what would the Jews' political status become under the reforms of the four years same, same during the last gasps of the Polish kingdom? Um, so the even ideas of emancipation are raised. And maybe we should bestow emancipation upon other strata of Polish society, including the Jews. And there is this, um, and this, as this is going on, as these ideas are being discussed, there's new types of lobbying uh, taking place, which the Jewish communities were not used to. Uh, they were employed on these aristocrats participating in the negotiations at the same. You have to bear in mind, of course, this is 1788 to 1792, so bear in mind that the French Revolution is taking place at this very moment with very similar discussions regarding emancipation on the other side of Europe. The merchant class who saw the Jews as an economic competitor, I'm sorry, competitors, uh, they fought against it, that the Jews should not receive any equal rights, and anti-Semitism is spreading as this time because there's this whole publicity campaign by the urban merchant class that the Jews are taking the Poles' uh, hard-earned money and stuff like that. So there's there's all this going on in the background. There's also an interesting thing. Part of the Stadlanus is that a, a fellow by the name of Mendel Leffen, Leffen is, uh, is, is commissioned by one of the aristocrats uh, participating, one of the noblemen participating in the same, to submit a a report on the status of Jews in in the Polish kingdom and how to improve them and how they can integrate into society. And he writes it in French, and the original document exists. And Mendelevin writes all these reforms in Jewish education that are needed and all these reforms in Jewish life that are needed in Jewish leadership, in the rabbinate, in the kahal system, in all sorts of things, because Mendelevin was uh, a maskil, an early maskil, and he uh, believed in in ideas of of of, of, of you know, cha- changing Jewish society, their economic productivity, and the educational system. He had spent time in Germany, and what's fascinating is that is that in recent years it's been debated if Mendelaffen was actually a muscular or not. Now, if you actually read this document that he submits to the warriors, it's unquestionable that he was a muscular. He's trying to change Jewish society. He's attacking Jewish education. He's attacking Jewish leadership. 
That's by any definition what a mosque is in the 18th century and submitting it to the government to implement these reforms. The problem is, is that he also wrote a book, uh, uh, Sefer Chesh Bin Hanefesh, which Rabbi Shol Salanter loved. It was actually based on the ideas of Benjamin Franklin uh, about improve, self-improvement. Um, so, so a non-Jew comes up with ideas. This Jewish maskil Mendelefin uh, writes the ideas and publishes them in a book called Sefer Chesh Bin Hanefesh. And Rabbi Shol Salanter, the founder of the Muslim movement, liked it a lot, and he incorporated the, rated that Sefer into the Muslim movement. It was used in Kelm, it was used in Slabatka, Rabbi Isaac Sher republished it in 1937. It was a common Sefer to be used. So the problem is, is if it's a common Sefer to be used, then how could it have been written by a maskil? So there's a certain amount of revisionism that's been going on, and there was an article re- written recently by a prominent mashgiach in Israel to explain that he wasn't really a maskil, and of course, you know, we have, we can use his sefer because Rabbi Saul Salanter used it, and he would never use a maskil sefer. So we have to always uh, be aware of that historical revisionism, but it comes up in the context of the four years same. So the kahal, the Jewish kahal in Poland, for their part, wished to remain with their autonomy, so they lobbied for a conservative position, which was ultimately desired by most of the aristocracy as well, to maintain their autonomy. So eventually the same decided to adopt a new constitution in 1791. Think of France at this time, of the United States at this time. So Poland is adopting a constitution as well in 1791. Poland even has a leader named Tadeusz Kościuszko, who attempted to restore Polish independence during the last days of the kingdom by the last partition. Till today, he's a Polish hero. Ironically, he actually fought in the American Revolution several years earlier alongside George Washington and helped train American troops to fight England. Either way, during this last fighting, there was actually a Jewish battalion fighting unit fighting with weapons for Polish independence in Warsaw. Another tidbit of Jewish history which foreshadowed future times because you have to bear in mind that this is before the Austrian Empire or the Russian Empire implemented the draft for the Jewish population. So this is really the first time that Jews were fighting in a real fighting capacity. So with the partitions completed by 1795, the Polish kingdom is wiped off the political map of Europe. The Jewish communities of the former kingdom would develop now in four distinct ways. In Russia, which is the first time the Russian Empire has Jews. They did not have Jews until this point. So there's a separate discussion that we have to explore in a future episode is the Tsars and the Jews, the relationship of the Tsars and the Jews, because the Tsars were not just the heads of state, they were also the heads of the Russian Orthodox Church. And... Um, and which is which was they considered the third Rome in in, in Moscow, Saint Petersburg. So they 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 had is that those two roles work uh, vis-a-vis the vis-a-vis the the Jewish population. The second um, Jewish community that's developing is Galicia, which is under the Austrian Habsburg Empire, which is later the Austria-Hungarian. The third one, which is smaller and uh, and less spoken about, is Prussia. And those, the Jews in those areas became incorporated into the German Empire, became very German. And then the fourth one is usually completely overlooked, is the Jews of central Poland under a somewhat Polish autonomy. They remain under somewhat Polish autonomy, at least until the 1863 revolt. So it remains somewhat Polish with the old connections to the Polish aristocracy uh, as it had been 
in the old Polish kingdom. So a future follow-up episode would need to examine how the Jews of the former Polish kingdom fared under the Tsars, fared under the Habsburgs. Those are the two big stories, and the two smaller stories under Prussia and under limited Polish autonomy. And that situation would last until World War I. In the aftermath of World War I and the collapse of the old order, these multi-ethnic empires would fall and republics would arise, and this would completely transform Jewish life in Eastern Europe, as the Jewish population would now find themselves in nationalistic nation-states, most times with full emancipation, but under completely different circumstances. This is Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at Yehuda at YehudaGeber.com. For questions, comments, sources, tours, trips, sponsorships, and lectures, you can uh, subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean or your favorite podcast platform, and I hope you enjoyed.